Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5 as we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah together. We saw last time that Nehemiah was leading his team of workers and fellow servants in the restoring and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down. And as that restoration process began to get underway, once again, they had to overcome opposition from their enemies, and Nehemiah, through his good and strong leadership, was able to inspire those serving together with him in that great work of God to persevere, to carry on as the enemies came against them and the different forms that they did, ridicule and questioning them, seeking to intimidate them, uh, even continuing to just come against them with one tactic after another, trying to cause confusion. Again, their intention was basically just as Nehemiah recognized that they were trying to cause the the work of God to cease. And whatever tactic they used, Nehemiah continued to pray as well as be practical. Uh, He continued to lift the matter up to the Lord, but then at the same time use practical judgment and do things that were necessary to adjust, uh, to make sure they were able to carry on with what God had led and directed them to do as his people. And so he set a watch to protect sort of a a guard, if you would, uh, weaponed uh, soldiers to be able to protect the people. And he encouraged them to remember the Lord and continue to fight for their families and to continue to build and to carry on. And really that it was something that uh, the people, though they were growing weary, uh, were able to persevere through. They kept moving forward. They kept pressing on. And, of course, now as we come to chapter 5, we see that uh, continual difficulties arise to seek to hinder the work of God. But this time we take notice that the difficulties aren't arising from without. It's actually problems that are happening from within. And, uh, again, just fitting illustrations these sections of scriptures are in regards to just spiritual warfare and opposition and how at times it comes against the work of God in our lives personally as individuals, how at times there's spiritual warfare and attack that happens against the work of God collectively, whether against his church, against ministry work uh, that we may be doing as his people, and sometimes the attacks come from without, from the opposition of the world, or the the devil bringing spiritual warfare against us in different ways, uh, using people. But then also, of course, sometimes the problems arise from within, and uh, at times there can be difficulties that arise relationally. Even among God's people, those from right within, problems start to arise, and the flesh begins to get in the way, that sin nature that we all have, and there begins to be challenges relationally among God's people and different things that can threaten the work of God and cause a hindrance, people mistreating others and doing things that are selfish and wrong. And that's really what we begin to see happening in chapter 5 now. And Nehemiah has to address this as a leader, recognizing that these problems from within can almost be just as dangerous as attacks and resistance from the worldly and ungodly people from without. Again, remember it was Jesus who said that a house divided against itself 
won't stand. And the devil recognizes this, and he will more than gladly create opposition from without, but he will also more than gladly create turmoil from within, whether it's problems in a family, difficulties in a marriage he's trying to drive a wedge between and separate, or whether it's problems even within a church. Again, Paul had to address that in the book of Corinthians. There was a a great church there in Corinth, but they had a lot of internal problems, problems with division, problems with selfishness. People, remember, were suing each other and taking one another to court in front of unbelievers. So again, there were problems from within seeking to deteriorate the health of the church. So as we come to Nehemiah 5 now, we see these problems arising from within that Nehemiah has to deal with. It tells us in chapter 5, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against, notice, their Jewish brethren. So again, the The problem that's brought to Nehemiah's attention, the outcry because of mistreatment and wrongdoing, notice was against not Sambalit and Tobiah, not the enemies from without within the world, but actually among their own family, if you would, among the Jewish people, among the family of of God's people. It says the outcry was against their own Jewish brethren, things that were being done wrong that were causing problems. In verses 2, through five kind of describe the scenario of exactly what was taking place and the difficulties that were arising. It says, verse two, that they said, for there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Again, the idea is they had large families and that was very common in that culture. It was a blessing to have a large family in an agrarian society. The children many times were helpful in taking care of the lands and the flocks and the herds. So you had large families, but with large families, you you kind of had, if you would, large uh, overhead expenses. It took a lot to feed a family and lots of mouths. And so it was, it was difficult at times to maintain a large household, though it was very, very common. We, our sons and our daughters, are many. We have large families. Verse 2, therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. So notice there was a problem, we'll see, with a lack of food and sustenance at this time. Verse 3, there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands, our vineyards, and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and on our vineyards. Verse 5, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed We are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought or brought into slavery, and it is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. So It appears that in the midst of these times, not only was the city in some ways in a dilapidated state, the walls of Jerusalem again broken down, they're trying to rebuild the infrastructure of the city because of the uh, difficult conditions uh, that they were enduring there. People are coming, they're living around Jerusalem trying to work on this project. We'll see, it was about a two-month-long project. And the people on top of that, it seems, were going just through some circumstantial times. They were facing some challenges in their society that they were there uh, at that time going through. Verse 3 references, if you take notice, it says that there was a famine 
going on. And again, a famine is a lack of of food, a, a food shortage. So they were going through a time where there was a famine in the land. Maybe there was a drought. Crops weren't producing. It was an economic struggle at this time. There was a lack of food. And so you have a lack of uh, supply, and when you have a lack of supply and, and a great demand, people are struggling to keep mouths fed and have enough food to take care of themselves. And so they begin to describe some of what they were trying to do. Verse 2, it tells us that they were saying, look, we need to get grain that we can eat and live. So this was a, a potential survival issue, just trying to have enough food to survive. And it says in verse 3 that they were actually having to mortgage off their lands. Uh, they were having to sell off their property, their vineyards, their houses, just so that they could buy enough food to feed their families during the famine. And there were also, it says, verse 4, those who said, look, we've had to borrow money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. So on top of this, they were struggling to pay the tax money to the government at this time. Again, remember, they're still ruled over by the Medo-Persian Empire, and there were taxes imposed upon them. So people were having to uh, take out loans. They were having to look to those who could give them loans that were more wealthy to be able to borrow enough money to keep up with their tax payments and do what was necessary so that their lands and their vineyards weren't repossessed because they weren't able to pay the note on their property or the taxes that were laid upon them for the amount of property that they had. And the problem that was going on, verse 5, is that some people were even becoming so desperate, it says there, that they were actually having to make a decision of starvation or actually allowing even some of their children to enter into servitude. Uh, Some of their sons and daughters were having to basically be hired out as slaves to be able to pay some of these debts and to be able to do what was necessary just to have enough so that starvation did not overcome them as families. And some of those who were more wealthy were, it seems, kind of exploiting this situation. And this is what's going on. Basically, as you have the Jewish brethren, rather than assisting their struggling brothers and sisters, they're kind of trying to exploit them in the midst of these difficult times for them economically. And those who are more wealthy who had greater means, who were lending out money to people, who were uh, selling uh, the possessions they had of excess grain and so forth, uh, were selling these things, it seems, at inflated rates. They were charging high interest rates on the loans that they were giving to people to be able to pay their taxes and to to, uh, pay for their lands and their vineyards, what was necessary, and they were taking even slaves from these families and taking indentured servants and making them work through forced labor to pay off debts and things of that nature. So uh, the rich were sort of exploiting the poor in some senses here, and there was this taking advantage of a hard situation and exploiting the vulnerability of people in tough economic times. And, and sadly, this kind of stuff happens Often throughout human history, it's taken place, but very tragic to see it actually happening among the people of God and people actually exploiting their own countrymen among the Jewish people and and God's people actually selfishly taking advantage of one another and exploiting vulnerable situations, exploiting people who are in hard times and taking advantage of them in those situations, just great selfishness taking place. Now, understand, what we're going to see as Nehemiah addresses this, what's so grievously wrong about it is not just the selfishness of it, but it's a complete 
and direct violation of the very Word of God itself. Again, the Bible tells us in multiple places, uh, Exodus chapter 22 is the first time that it's addressed there, that it was okay for the Jewish people, according to the Mosaic Law, to lend money to their brothers and sisters. However, when they did that, uh, they were not to lend money at interest rates. Uh, They could lend money, they could help out, but they weren't to try and collect interest off of those loans and take advantage of people in hard economic times and exploit their poverty or their stressful situation economically at times. Exodus 22 verse 25 says, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. So they could lend money. You could lend a hand to help out and do what was necessary. But God says when you do that, you're not to exploit the situation for selfish gain financially. You weren't to take advantage of that difficult situation or among those who were poor and be like the typical money lenders in the world where you charge interest and so forth. Again, in Leviticus chapter 25, uh, we see the same thing referenced once again. Leviticus chapter 25, it tells us this. Uh, In verse 35, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, you shall help him. So we should help when someone's in a difficult situation financially, like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Again, Leviticus 25 verse 36, God reiterates, take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave." As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and serve until the year of Jubilee. That was, again, that year of release. So, again, they could make arrangements to help out, but the idea is they weren't to selfishly exploit people for financial profit, to take advantage of people in their hardship, things of that nature. And this is exactly what was being done. They were disregarding the word of God and allowing their selfish interests to be the thing that was directing them rather than having compassion for those in hardship, rather than wanting to have a giving heart or help out and say, hey, God has blessed us. We're in a condition or a situation where we have excess and we can help you in this time of famine or hardship. And and we want to help as God has helped us. Again, that was the pattern that God gave to them. Look, God says, I took you out of Egypt. I brought you out of a place of slavery and bondage and hard labor and servitude where you were exploited and used and taken advantage of with a heavy hand. And I brought you into a land that you did nothing to inherit, a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And they inherited lands that they didn't work for. They inherited wells they didn't dig. And uh, and again, they inherited vineyards and, and fields that they didn't have to work for. And God just blessed them and gave this to them. And so God wanted them to have that same generous heart in response towards others at times. And so he forbade to do this, but yet they were disregarding God's word and selfishly doing these things anyway. So as this comes to Nehemiah, 
And he becomes aware of this, not only that it's a violation of God's word, but just he's shocked that in, in these kind of times that people would actually be behaving selfishly, especially as God's people. And that rather than partnering together and supporting and helping each other, they were actually trying to take advantage of each other. He, he was righteously indignant or angry. This upset him to see people being mistreated. Look at verse 6. It says, when he heard this going on, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6, we're back there, and I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. So as Nehemiah got report of this, he indicates here, when I heard how people were being mistreated, being abused, taken advantage of, ripped off and treated in selfish ways by people who were greedy and exploiting them in their vulnerability, Nehemiah says, it made me very angry. Again, the Bible does not say that it is wrong for us to get angry, nor does it say that God himself does not get angry. The Bible says that God is just slow to anger. Even Jesus himself, we see, getting angry at times. Remember when Jesus went into the temple and he saw the money changers there at exorbitant rates, exchanging money in God's house and selling animals, it seems, making a, a marketplace of the house of God, which was supposed to be a place of worship, and people kind of went in and set up shop there and were using the things of God to exploit people's uh, compassion or desire to worship and kind of in that way, taking advantage of them and maybe of a vulnerable condition where they're there, they just want to honor God and they're offering, well, look at these fantastic quality A-grade sheep that we have. These are approved. They've been inspected by the priests. Uh, your sheep's not going to be good enough, but here we have these premium ones that you can purchase. We don't want you to have to go back or not be able to worship. Your sacrifice might be rejected, but if you purchase this, we've and, and we've got a price here for you. And again, they were they were taking advantage of God's people, and, and they were using the things of God as a way to actually gain money from people, uh, and exploiting people, and taking advantage of them in vulnerable conditions, and uh, again ripping people off. And when Jesus saw that, remember he flipped over the tables of the money changers and took out a whip and drove people out with great anger and force because he did not want to see people being abused and taken advantage of, and that angered Jesus. It's very interesting to take notice of the things that angered Jesus the most were not things that were done to him, but when he saw mistreatment happening to other people. Jesus not necessarily became angry when people caused offense or hurt or mistreatment towards him. That's usually when he was compassionate, patient, many times he was merciful, but Jesus would not stand for watching other people be hurt, other people be abused or taken advantage of or mistreated. That's when the anger of the Lord would be aroused and seem to kind of come forth in a strong way. And again, here, Nehemiah, he, he's not angry because of what's being done to him. We're going to see in this chapter, he apparently was doing okay. Remember, he came as a cupbearer from a king. Uh, he has the king's backing. He, he's fine financially. He's not in a situation where he's struggling. It's not that he's upset because this is being done to him. Nehemiah becomes very angry because of what's being done to others. And I think that's very interesting because a lot of times we tend to become very angry when somebody does something to us. And great anger comes out. Somebody offended me or they slighted me or they took advantage of me or did something 
to you know upset or hurt me and, and that's when we get very angry we get very angry when something happens to us or something harmful or hurtful happens towards us uh, but yet we see in the Bible what really should provoke our anger is not self-preservation because, again, selfishly our world's been disrupted. That's where we should perhaps learn to be more forgiving and patient and compassionate. But what should really anger us is when we see people being mistreated, that our love for other people more than our love for ourselves, would awaken righteous anger within us when we see people being hurt when we see those vulnerable being exploited or abused, when we see people doing other people wrong, that's when great anger should really have its proper place. And Nehemiah is going to come to the defense of these people and deal with this strongly because he won't stand for seeing people be mistreated under his watch and his loving care as a leader. So he says, I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words of what was being done. But notice verse 7, he says, And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So Nehemiah here confronts what they were doing. And again, you see what he indicates right there in verse 7 of what they were doing. He specifically calls them out on their sin and their violation of God's word, that they were exacting usury from their brother, a direct violation of God's word, something that was very selfish, it was greedy, it was exploiting someone in a helpless condition, it was taking advantage of the weak or those who were vulnerable and weren't able to defend themselves. And Nehemiah reproves them for doing this. It says he rebuked these nobles and rulers who were doing it, identifying their sin, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. But notice verse 7 tells us that though he did rebuke them, though he did challenge them strongly for their sin, and we'll see he's going to go on with this, that he did not do this immediately. Verse 6 says he became very angry. That indicates strong emotion, heightened level of a strong emotional experience. He is steam in his ears, face red, he's really upset, but he did not in that emotional state of great anger instantly go and start addressing the problem in the midst of his emotion at its highest peak when his anger was very strong. Instead, he sort of took the opportunity to sort of help himself process his emotions a little bit maybe let the, the emotions diffuse a little bit so he could handle this in a constructive way and not a destructive way that would just be putting gasoline onto a fire and cause a bigger problem. He says there in verse 7 that though he was greatly angry after serious thought, then I rebuked him. In other words, he says, I took some time to kind of think this over. And, I had to, and I'm sure that serious thought involved a, some serious prayer. Knowing Nehemiah, he's clearly been a man of prayer. And he probably took some time to just pray and think it over. This is wrong, and but how do I address this, and what do I do, and I need to stop this situation? And he just took time to give serious thought to the matter before he addressed the issue. Look, whenever we're going to address an issue, it's good to take a little bit of time and give some serious thought to it and not just put our brain in neutral 
and open our mouth and begin to just start saying things, rebuking people and correcting people. Because a lot of times then what we do is is we end up just stumbling and entering into sin ourselves because we let our anger make us respond in an overreactive way and we start perhaps sometimes saying and doing things way more severely than we should and it doesn't solve the problem. A lot of times it can just magnify the problem. It can be gasoline on the fire. So it's wise to always... When you're deeply emotional, whether it's anger or whatever it may be, take some time. Give it serious thought. You just kind of let it be something you, you mull over a little bit, think the thing through, pray the thing through, and then with wisdom and sound judgment in a reasonable way, then you do address the problem. You can't leave problems unaddressed. Relational problems have to be dealt with. Whatever that relational problem may be, whether it's among your family, whether it's with your children, whether it's in the marriage, whether it's a relational problem among the church, problems arise. When you have people, you have problems. Uh, you can't have more than one person involved and not start to have problems because you have differences of opinion, you have people who have selfish and sinful natures. Relational problems are just a part of of life. It's a part of doing things together. It's going to happen in business affairs. It's going to happen in family situations. It happens in marriages. And yes, it even happens in churches. Problems arise. Relational difficulties take place, and they have to be addressed. But Nehemiah shows great wisdom as a leader. He addresses it, but he really takes serious thought before he starts to address it, how to do it, and what's the right approach. But he does rebuke the sin. He addresses it. What you're doing is wrong, he says. In essence, this is sinful. What you're doing is improper, and he's going to say it needs to stop. This needs to no longer be going on, and he's going to correct in light of this. This reminds me of the great principle of Ephesians chapter 4, where, again, it says there, be angry but sin not. So, again, we should get angry. There are things that should anger us, but our anger should never be an excuse to then behave wrongly. We can get angry, but we don't have to let our anger translate into sinful behavior as the way that we process or handle our anger. We can get angry again and be constructive with our anger, deal with it correctly after serious thought, rather than becoming destructive because we say or do things that are then wrong ourselves because our anger overcame us. So Nehemiah calls them to account, and then verse 7, it says, I called a great assembly against them. So he's going to resolve this on a collective level. Everyone needs to be involved. This is a kind of a corporate problem, and so it needed to be addressed among everybody, those who were being victimized, those who were being mistreated, those who were mistreating the people and doing these things wrong. There needed to be a resolution to this, so he calls assembly against them, and he said to them, verse 8, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren, those sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren? So he says, look, we've, we've taken people out of a condition of slavery to get them here back to Jerusalem to have freedom again, to rebuild the temple, to restore the worship and freedom that God wanted for his people. And, and we're rebuilding the walls as the result of liberation from being in bondage and servitude to the Babylonians and the, uh, you know, the Medo-Persians and, of course, initially all the way back being freed from Egypt. And he says, look, we've been given freedom, and now are we going to make each other slaves again? He says, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? 
And verse 8 says, they were silenced and found nothing to say. In other words, what Nehemiah said was spot on. He was accurate in his reproof. He identified their sin, he brought it to light, and he basically silenced them. In their error, they knew they were wrong. They knew they were guilty, and he clearly exposed their guilt, and they had no argument against it. And he clearly identified it in such a way that they did not argue about it. They just humbly realized, wow, he's right. We've been selfish. We've disobeyed God's word. And I think a good and an effective rebuke of sin kind of brings people to that place of, if their heart is willing to be right, genuine humility, they're humbled, they kind of are left somewhat speechless, it takes away their excuses, they don't argue against it anymore, and they kind of recognize, uh, this person is right, uh, this leader addressing and correcting me is appropriate, and, and what I've done is wrong, and, and, and they kind of start to recognize it, we'll see here. They had nothing to say, they were silenced. In verse 9, then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the approach of the nations and our enemies? So Nehemiah says, look, what you're doing is just not good. It's just not good. It was actually quite bad. And I look at that statement there, verse 9, what you are doing is not good. As I think of Nehemiah as a type and a picture of the Holy Spirit as he is, we've talked about this before, sometimes that's what the Holy Spirit points out to us as he's addressing some error in our lives from time to time. Again, he's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That is, he's a spirit of holiness, and therefore he identifies that which is not holy in our lives. He identifies what's sinful. He identifies what's not wholesome, what's wrong, what's incorrect, and he puts his finger upon those things. We call that conviction, conviction of sin. And sometimes the Holy Spirit simply prompts us in conviction by bringing to our attention something that is wrong, rebuking, reproving us, whether it be through the voice of someone else who loves us enough to speak the truth, whether it be through the Word of God that kind of pierces our heart and we hear the truth of the Scripture and we realize we've been living in contradiction to the truth of God's Word and violating God's will and the written Scripture, whether it's just some other form, maybe just something that pricks our conscience, whatever it may be, and the Holy Spirit's message to us sometimes is what you're doing right now, it's not good. It is just not good, and it needs to stop. And the reason it's not good is not just that it's sinful and wrong and perhaps harmful, but he says, don't you fear God, verse 9, or the reproach of the nations, our enemies? He says, you're behaving in a way that's honestly somewhat uh, you know, kind of audacious as if you're brazenly disregarding God's authority. You're doing what you want and you've become the authority in your life and your selfishness and you're disregarding that what you're doing isn't honoring God. We should always live in the fear of God. The idea is out of reverence for God, that God is a holy God. He's the ultimate authority, and he's going to be the one who holds us to account for what we do. And so we should always value anything we do in light of the fact that ultimately, God, I need to answer to you for this. So God is the way I'm treating this person. Are you okay with that in your authority? 
uh, here I am trying to exert my authority to maybe take advantage of somebody or selfishly you know, abuse my authority as a human being. But what about God's authority? God's the ultimate authority. Uh, and to have no fear of God is a dangerous place to be. And he says, look, you've lost the fear of God. You're doing these things and not even taking into consideration that you should be in fear of God for what you're doing wrong because God's going to hold you to account for it. And he says, not to mention, it's a horrible testimony to the nations around us. He says, don't you fear their reproach? In other words, they're looking on, and in a mockery, they're looking at God's people and among the Jewish brethren in that day and saying, look at the way they're treating each other. They're ripping each other off. They're exploiting each other financially. They're taking each other as slaves and mistreating one another in selfishness and greed. And it was a horrible testimony for God's people. Remember, this is what Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians, again, when they were bringing one another to court and actually suing each other, the Bible tells us. And Paul says, and yet you're doing this even in front of unbelievers. In other words, he's saying, not only is it wrong that you're doing it, but you're doing this while the world's watching on and the unbelieving world is watching God's people, how they behave, and instead of seeing them behave differently in love at a different standard than the world treats one another, Paul was saying, you're behaving just like or if not worse than the world because the world would expect more of God's people, that we would be forgiving and sacrificial and willing to let things go. That's why Paul argues there in 1 Corinthians 6, if you're not familiar with the passage, read it. Paul says, wouldn't it be better to just let yourself be wronged? than to try and do what you can to always get your way in the situation. And there's great wisdom to that, you know, to, to at times say, you know what, yeah, maybe this person did do me wrong, or maybe this person does owe me some money or whatever. And th there's a time where among God's people, it might be the higher road to say, you know what, I'm just going to let myself be wronged and trust the Lord to take care of me and to deal with that person for the wrong things they've done to me and just let it go and let God take care of it because I care about honoring the Lord's reputation. And I don't want to tarnish the reputation of God by behaving in an unbecoming way as God's people while the world is looking on. This is what Nehemiah is concerned about. He says, verse 10, I also with my brethren and my servants, I'm lending them money. He says, you're, you're lending them money and trying to exploit them with high interest. And he says, I'm lending them money and grain trying to help people. Please, he says, verse 10, let us stop this usury. So what they were doing wrong, he says, look, it needs to stop. Number one, the wrong behavior has to stop. And then number two, verse 11, and restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and a hundredth part of the money and the grain. That seems maybe to be a reference there to the level of interest that was being kind of levied upon the people as they were lending them resources and help. He says, return a hundredth part and of the oil that you have charged them. So notice two things Nehemiah says, look, you want to make things right? You've done what's wrong. What you're doing is not good. You've hurt and taken advantage of people and the way you've mistreated them. He says, number one, stop what you're doing. The behavior needs to stop. The way you've been hurting someone, the way you've mistreated someone, the way you've been taking advantage of somebody, first of all, he says it needs to cease. It just needs to stop. You need to put an end to it, whatever that takes. And then secondly, he says, you don't just put an end to it, then you need to make it right. And the way that you make it right is, he says, restoration, you know, restitution. 
Sometimes, you know, it's important if you've done something, you've robbed somebody, hurt somebody, ripped somebody off, even financially. You don't just stop what you're doing and apologize. You stop what you're doing, you apologize, and what you perhaps need to do as well to bring it full circle is you need to restore what you've stolen from them. You need to give them back the money that you owe them. You need to do what's necessary in some way to make restitution and, and to give back that which you've taken from someone. And again, if it's not money, maybe there's some process or thing that needs to be done, but you've got to figure out a way to properly make amends and go above and beyond. That's genuine repentance. That is full-hearted desire to really want to bring things full circle and make proper amends and healing when these kind of things have happened in hurtful ways. So verse 12, they said, we will restore it. They want to comply. And we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So they're going to cancel the loans, it seems, restore back the interest that they had taken from them. Then I called the priests and required an oath that they would do according to this promise. And I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. He says, you've promised it. Uh, you need to keep your word now and follow through in what you have said. And if not, may God deal with you, Nehemiah says, for not honoring your word when you've made a promise. Even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied, he says, verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen. The idea is, so be it, or let it be so. That's what the word amen means. Let it be so, as you said. And they praised the Lord. Why? Not because they're having a worship service. They praised the Lord that he intervened and confronted them for their sin. They praised the Lord that he intervened and brought to light something that was happening that was wrong in their relationships as people. They praised the Lord that he loved them enough to challenge and confront them in their sin and in their hurtful behavior so that it could stop, so that it could be something that could be healed and addressed and made right before it continued in its destructive path. And wow, what a wonderful thing to kind of have that heart, to actually praise the Lord when you've been rebuked for sin, to praise the Lord when he deals with a, a situation that's not healthy and as hard as it may be, that he brings it to light so that healing and change can happen and that selfish and sinful treatment of one another can stop and things can be restored among relationships. They praise the Lord. And the people then did according to the promise. They carried through what they said they were going to do. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years. So it seems about a 12-year span, Nehemiah kind of served as a governor, a political official in that land, he says. He says, I, verse 14, nor my brothers ate the governor's provision. So it seems there was some allotment that was made for those who served as public officials, as political leaders, governors and territories, this governor's provision. And he says, but we opted not to partake of that. It was allotted to us. It was available. We were entitled to it. But he says, given the conditions, we actually opted to be a good example and to be giving rather than to be selfish. So again, Nehemiah is just indicating his heart in the situation. The great example he was as a leader, he says, we didn't even eat the governor's provisions. Verse 15, but the former governors who were before me, they laid burdens on the people. Again, they, they took advantage of their position of leadership and, and kind of used their role to exploit people. 
use their position to kind of take advantage of get the most that they could in their role of leadership. And Nehemiah says, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that as a leader. I would not allow my position to be something I use for my benefit when I realize I'm called to be a servant leader and my role of leadership is to be of influence and help and not to be something where I can exploit people with authority that I have. And he said that may have been what the former governors did, laying burdens on the people who, it says, took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Again, Nehemiah says, I wouldn't do that. They may have been the way former leaders behaved, but he says, I would not engage in that kind of activity. And why? Notice, because Nehemiah's conscience, first and foremost, was doing what was right before God. He says, I had the fear of God in my heart, and that's what helped me keep my heart in check in regards to the way that I provided leadership to his people. In the 12 years he served as a political leader, as a governor, he says, I didn't do so because of the fear of God. It's so important that we, in our lives, maintain a healthy fear of God because that's what keeps our conscience in check. When you have a sense of that I answer to God for everything that I do, that I say, for the opportunities he gives to me, for the role he may afford to me, well, I tell you, a healthy fear of God keeps a heart in a healthy condition and keeps a healthy attitude. And when that begins to diminish from somebody, what's really happening is the bigger underlying issue is they're losing their fear of God. And that's why they're beginning to mistreat people and why they're trying to hurt people. I, I, hurt people. I think of Jesus when he spoke using, again, analogies of uh, you know, his going away and then returning once again. And he spoke in the Gospels of how those who you know, were servants and the master would go away, and when the master was away for a long time, that they would begin to beat and to mistreat their servants. And again, the idea behind this was because they didn't feel any sense of accountability or getting caught for what they were doing, and they didn't have any sense that the master was going to return anytime soon— or respect the role that they had of being stewards. While the master was gone, they began to abuse their position and abuse their authority and abuse people, really, and mistreat people. And a lot of times when we start to mistreat people, the more fundamental issue is not a relationship breakdown between us and another person. It's a breakdown of relationship between us and God. And because our heart is not right before God, we wrongly begin to mistreat people in selfish ways and take advantage of people and harm and hurt people in ways that we wouldn't if God's fear was keeping us in check as it should. Verse 16, Nehemiah says, and indeed I also continued the work on this wall and we did not buy any land. All my servants gathered there for the work. So he says, we weren't there as opportunists. We weren't looking to buy the land up We weren't looking around saying, hey, these are difficult times. People are struggling economically. They can't pay for their mortgages on their lands. Uh, Let's buy everybody's cheap properties. Let's be opportunists and do what we can to really expand our real estate during this time of hardship for everyone else and capitalize. Uh, You know, why everything's cheap, let's buy it all up and get the most for ourselves. He says, no, we were there to work. We were there to help people, and, and while they were struggling, we weren't going to try and capitalize 
as opportunists. And, you know, kind of uh, sometimes a, a sad thing that happens. Again, I understand using stewardship and wisdom, being business savvy, but there's kind of something sad sometimes when uh, people are mainly looking predominantly just for how they can always get ahead and uh, kind of looking at a situation like that. And he says, we weren't there to buy land. Uh, we were there to work and do what we could to be productive and and help. That was the more important issue at the time. And at my table, he says, were 150 Jews, rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily, he says, was one ox, six sheep, and fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, verse 18, he says, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. So again, you see Nehemiah's heart there as a leader, as a political leader, as a governor. Uh, He said, you know what? They were hard times. People were struggling, he says. And so therefore, though I could have partaken of what was rightfully mine, the governor's provisions, that wasn't even him selfishly exploiting anything. This was just part of the provision of being a political leader, being a governor at the time, he says, I was entitled to it, but I I didn't demand it. It seems Nehemiah actually kind of was willing to forego what was available to him and had enough resources because of his own financial position, probably again coming as a cupbearer from the Medo-Persian Empire. He was probably to some degree maybe a little bit of a, a more well-off man himself, and he saw this as an occasion to be able to use his resources to bless and help. He says, you know, we didn't even take that. We didn't feel it was necessary, so we didn't demand. And in fact, he says, we sought, sought to use what we had to feed people around our table and to take care of people. That's what he's describing there in verse 17 and 18, that What was there, he says, uh, there were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came at times to visit. He says, that's what we sought to do, to to bless, to give away, to do what we could to be generous and helpful. And Nehemiah says, verse 16, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. He again closes up this section in prayer. He says, God, I'm asking you, remember me, God. You see what I've done. You see the ways that I've tried to do what's right in your sight. Nehemiah wasn't trying to maintain popularity. He was trying to do what was right in the sight of God. He was trying to keep God's work moving forward. He was trying to address things that would hold back God's work from flourishing and God's people from being healthy. And again, that meant dealing with problems on the outside. It meant with dealing with internal relational problems on the inside as people were doing things at times were wrong in the way they treated one another. And and he just looks to God. He says, Lord, you know what I've done. And you know why I'm doing the things that I'm doing and how I'm trying to even make sacrifices myself, he says, to do what is good according to all that I have done for this people. And he's just kind of looking to the Lord, saying, Lord, you know what I have given out, and I, and I trust you to take care of me. I'm willing to be giving, Lord. I trust that you'll take care of me as I seek to do what's good for the people and what honors you. You know, as I read Nehemiah's closing statements there, it just reminds me of this wonderful heart that we can have as God's people sometimes to seek to have more of the heart of being a, a, a gracious giver and someone who's willing to trust God 
to take care of us as we seek to be like God, giving and loving and gracious in our nature. Again, whether it's with our resources, financially, our efforts, our time, our willingness to make sacrifices, to do good things just to help people, to try and serve God and and do things, that, that God honors that. And God will take care of that. Proverbs chapter 11 says to us this, Proverbs 11, verse 24 and 25, There is one who scatters, that is, scatters, gives away, yet increases the more. And there's one who withholds more than is right, trying to self-preservation, take care of yourself, but that leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters, that is, waters others, will also be watered himself. What a beautiful thing to have that kind of a heart, an open hand to realize that we're channels and conduits of God's love, of God's kindness and help in whatever form it would come through our life to help other people, and to be someone who is willing to do what we can uh, to help, that we wouldn't always look to try and self-preserve, to protect ourselves, to do what's our best interest. That is the nature of the flesh, to do what is selfish to always demand my rights. Again, I didn't demand the governor's provisions. And that's, a, that's just a plague among humanity in our world. And sadly, sometimes it even becomes a plague that robs God's people in the flesh from really sometimes doing the things we ought to do as the Lord's people is the plague of self-centeredness and just kind of demanding our rights and making it about, it's about me and making sure I get my way and making sure I'm okay, rather than like Jesus, having the attitude where he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give away his life as a ransom for many. You know, be someone like Jesus, who gives away your life, and is someone who serves and blesses and helps others. Be someone who's not so concerned about always demanding having your way, or or ever, ever becoming guilty of taking advantage of another person or harming someone and thinking it's acceptable to harm someone, but instead that we would have a healthy fear of God and always have that as the underlying thing that helps us to consider how we will treat people because we know we're going to answer to God for how we treat people, and therefore we want to treat people the way that God wants us to. We'll read ahead in chapter 6. We'll begin.